probably remember the story of the three, 33, excuse me, 33 Chilean miners um, who were trapped underground. The saga of that began in August, August 5th, actually, of 2010. The mine had collapsed, and this saga dragged on for 69 days while the whole world watched in solidarity with the Chilean people as they tried to figure out a way to bring these miners to the top, <laughs> to the surface. They had restless efforts. I can't even imagine what it would have been like to be one of those miners under the surface of the earth about a half a mile down, knowing there is not one thing you can do to rescue yourself. You're stuck. Does somebody have a plan? Are they coming for you? 17 days later, we actually got confirmation that they were alive. And it was at least, well, it was over two months before they were able to get to the bottom to actually start the rescue. For days, the country of Chile placed all of their resources into bringing these men back to the surface. Meanwhile, the men underground have two choices. Do they have faith or are they going to be afraid? Do they have fear? They chose faith. And we know that because when they were rescued, one of the men says, I was with God and I was with the devil. I reached out for God. October 12th, global audiences watched as the first um, rescuers reached the bottom. And it was just a little over 24 hours later till the miners and the rescuers were all on the surface. And then all you heard was all and joy. All of them were alive. All of them were back on the surface. All of them had been rescued. Pure joy, pure excitement because of the rescue. Luke's gospel was written to announce a rescue plan of much greater magnitude. The human race was buried under years of sin and they had absolutely no possibility of survival. Help could only come from above. And it did. The savior of the world came down to fulfill heaven's plan to rescue the world because no cost was too great. The Gospel of Luke is full of joy and excitement because this salvation has been reached. Luke's Gospel is a, the longest book in the New Testament and is, uses the noun Savior and salvation more than any of the other Gospels. Heaven had designed a plan. Jesus has come to fulfill it. And it seems that the question is, who could be rescued? The strong, the learned, the religious? Luke spends quite a bit of time answering this question. And his answer is, salvation is for all. Over the next few weeks, I want to go through the book of Luke and touch on some of his stories and parables that will relate to the fact that salvation is for all and see some of the, how they relate to it. One of the things I learned in studying this is the one of the fascinating ways that Luke uses to illustrate that salvation is for all 
and show his purpose in writing the gospel was to have stories of man and woman back to back. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, in the first chapter, he tells the story of the old priest, Zachariah, and backs it up with the Virgin Mary. In the next chapter, he talks about the prophet Simeon and backs it up with the story of the prophetess Anna. Um, later on in chapter 4, he talks about the widow from Zarephath and backs it up with a story about Naaman. Um, you have the one of the centurion needing um, help, and then the widow of Nain who was saved from disaster. Even the great finding chapter, Luke 15, talks about the shepherd who lost a sheep and backs it up with the dear woman who lost a coin. So we see that Luke is using this method quite a bit throughout his gospel to make sure that the message comes through that salvation is for all. And his desire is even brought out when he talks about the genealogy of Jesus. Because he doesn't stop at Abraham or the, excuse me, the Jewish nation. He goes all the way back to Adam. He shows Jesus' um, genealogy all the way back to Adam to be sure that you know that salvation started from the beginning, not from the Jews. Salvation is for all. He wants to be sure that you know that salvation includes those who do not seem to qualify, such as poor, lowly, the outcast. He goes to great lengths to bring this out in several of his stories. He starts out um, by describing this res rescue plan that it includes salvation for the fearful in the very first chapter um, there's a fantastic comparison between an old priest and a young woman both are afraid when Gabriel announces that each will experience a miracle birth Zachariah and Elizabeth are way past the age of childbearing but it is announced to them that they are going to have a son. And the angel, Zachariah, is quite frightened when this announcement comes. They're even told to name their son John. Mary, when the angel comes to her, is pretty afraid and totally wondering how this is going to happen. She's going to have a miracle birth, and she's going to name her son Jesus. But the angel makes sure that they know there's no reason to fear. He says, be not afraid, fear not. And their fear is turned to joy, as is evidenced by the songs they sing. You remember in um, the first chapter, Mary breaks out in a song, and Luke records it. He's, he's just in this joy and excitement thing, isn't he? And Zechariah even has a song recorded in Luke 1. Um... And then the angels sing, and there's just all kinds of songs and excitement recorded by Luke. He, wants, he wanted to make sure you understood salvation is for all. So we're going to look at a couple of the stories um, that talk about that and the good news. I had a friend once, and this is quite some years ago, probably 20, 25 years. She was told she had cancer. And at that time, cancer was still, and is today, 
a real knockdown. Um, she met with her doctors and was told, the cancer you have is totally curable. I don't think she ever heard what it was going to take to cure it. I don't think she heard the doctor say there's going to be six surgeries between finding out where it is and reconstruction and on and on. She never heard that. She didn't hear what it was going to take that there might be chemo or there would be chemo and radiation. She was ecstatic. It's curable. Good news. The story of Luke talks about good news. Good news is coming. He starts out his gospel with this good news. Did you know he's the only one that includes a piece of the puzzle not found in any other gospel? He tackles the problem of getting Jesus' parents to Bethlehem. You see, the Jews or Jewish scriptures had all kinds of prophecies about the Messiah coming, starting in Genesis, where the Messiah was going to come and crush the heel of the serpent. Um, and then later on, Abraham is told that he's going to be the father of many nations and that his, the Messiah would come through him. Um, even narrowing it down later to David, the Messiah was going to be from the Davidic line. of um, Davidic line. And then Micah, even narrows it further. Look for your Messiah. He is going to be born in Bethlehem. So, Luke begins with the fact in, in chapter 2, he tells us there is a census. Caesar Augustus has ordered a census and everyone must return to their ancestral city to be counted. Since Joseph and Mary are both from the line of David, fulfilling one of the prophecies, um, they have to go to Bethlehem. So, in verse 4, Luke tells us that Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. Here you thought Caesar Augustus was calling the shots, didn't you? You thought this census was his idea. This is fulfilling prophecy from hundreds of years before. God in heaven knew what he was doing. He knew that this was the time he had ordained it. God was calling the shots. And so Luke gets these parents of Jesus from Nazareth to Bethlehem as he describes what God had foretold hundreds of years before. Moving on to verse 6, he says, While they were in Bethlehem, the days were completed for her to give birth. Some of your versions probably say the days were finally over for her to give birth. <laughs> I know any of you mothers out there would think the days are finally over. Is Luke referring to it's finally over, that nine months is finally here? Probably not. I don't think he had a clue what the finally over meant in that department. But he's looking at the fulfillment of prophecies. Remember the 69 years that are cut off from the 490? God's timetable has come, and the Savior is ready to be born. It's time for him to be born. And now it is time to declare this good news. But to whom does God choose to declare this good news? Luke continues in verse 7 
with his theme of reaching the lowly and the poor when he says that she laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. The Savior of the world started out his life by coming into the world as a lowly, destitute, and marginalized person, able to reach those who are in the same position. Now the good news is ready to be given. And as you know, it's given to the shepherds. What you may not realize is in first century, particularly in Jewish culture, there were two groups of people considered unworthy to be witnesses. I'm sure you're going to guess the one, which is, of course, women, had no standing, no right to witness, and shepherds. Shepherds were not allowed to be a witness in the court of law. I guess they were considered too much of an outcast, didn't know enough to even be a witness. But who does God choose? He chooses as his first witnesses, shepherds. Seems that it's not important to God to go to those who are learned and think they know it all. But he chooses shepherds because he knew shepherds were understand this good news because they had heard so much of the bad news and they were humble and teachable in heart. This news is a little bit of a paradigm because it's happening during the time of Caesar Augustus. And the name, his name actually meant son of God. So we've got Caesar Augustus here and it's happening in his time. He's name means son of God and meanings of names had a little more importance in first century than they really do now but Caesar Augustus is the one who initiated the Pax Romana Roman peace he's also the one that initiated buildings of roads he had built like 53,000 miles worth of roads that spread from Scotland all the way down to the Euphrates what a perfect time for this good news to travel and travel quickly. Heaven had been preparing the world for some time for this grand news. The shepherds are watching over their flocks at night and they're caught unaware and experience great fear. So the angel says to him in verse 10, do not be afraid. I bring you good tidings of great joy for all people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in the manger. Woohoo! This news is for even you, the marginalized, you, the shepherds. I can hear these shepherds saying, okay, good. We hear good news all the time. You see that road over there? They travel up and down that every time Caesar Augustus has a birthday. They're walking up and down, good news, good news, Caesar Augustus is another year older. We've heard this a lot of times. The angel says, oh no. This is mega good news. The real savior is born. It is Christ the Lord, yes the anointed one, that one that you've been hearing about in the scriptures all this time. This is the one that is born. This is the real good news. And the angel says, uh, I can hear him saying, I know, 
you're used to hearing when that Pax Romana and when Caesar Augustus has his birthday, it's always preceded by music. The Roman world was big on making sure that good news was included music. How's this? Suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God. Can you imagine hearing that choir? What grand news and music to go with it. But the angel isn't done with that yet. He says, I know you're uh, used to hearing about the Roman peace, but I am here to tell you that it is glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. This isn't just peace for the Roman world. This is peace for the whole earth. So the shepherds go straight to Bethlehem. This good news, we gotta, we gotta confirm this. Gotta make sure this is really true. They found out that it was exactly like the angel had told them. And verse 20 says that they went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen just as it had been told to them. On days when you feel like you're a failure, when you're marginalized, we're fragile, weak, forgotten by society, then it is time to remember this story. God doesn't forget. He bypassed the theologians, he bypassed the religious leaders and temple leaders. He went straight to the farm straight for those who were humble in heart and would understand the good news because they knew so much of the bad news. They were the ones who understood that we can't and God can. And now God has shown them that he did. Salvation is for the marginalized and the outcasts. The next story I wanted to look at today, I relate pretty well too. I don't know if any of you have ever felt like an outsider. Um, I have for a large portion of my life. Um, from the time I graduated from, high, from college and got married until we moved to Naples was about 16, 16 and a half years maybe. I lived in 17 different places. It's hard to feel like you belong when you've moved that much. You pretty much feel like an outsider and there's just no friends who really care about you and no reason to be included in the group. So Luke is gonna tackle this idea for outsiders too. Is it for those who don't fit in? Is it for the outsiders? When we said salvation for all, did Luke include outsiders? He wants to be sure you know that he does. And this story is going to start in Luke 4, 14. Jesus, re oops, we didn't advance. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news of him spread through all the surrounding region. You might remember that in the first chapter, the Spirit had led him into the wilderness, and the Spirit is now leading him back to the region of Galilee. 
verse 15 informs us that news about him has spread. Why did it spread? Everybody's speaking well of him. Jesus has made quite the buzz. He's, quite, he's on everybody's lips. Everybody's talking about him. Something marvelous is happening. So on this special day, in verse 16, he came to the village of Nazareth, which is his boyhood home, and he went as usual to the synagogue on Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. This Sabbath is a special day. This is homecoming. The, sea, uh, the uh, village of Nazareth is somewhere kind of halfway between Galilee and um, Mount Carmel. It's an unremarkable town, not very big, nothing special about it. As a matter of fact, it was probably a pretty rough town because if you remember Nathaniel when he was told that they wanted to go see Jesus who was from Nazareth, what good thing, can any good thing, is there a good thing that can come out of Nazareth? So we're pretty sure it's a unremarkable kind of low t place. So Jesus is there and he's asked to read the scriptures. Um, usually a Sabbath service in the synagogue would include two readings of scripture. One from the Torah, probably usually read by one of the priests, and then one from the prophets, and that was usually by one of the um, men in the audience, or whatever they want to call it. And Jesus is asked to read. He's given the um, scroll of Isaiah. I keep doing this wrong. He was handed the book of Isaiah, and when he opened the book, he found the place where it is written. Can you imagine with me for a minute, you're sitting in this synagogue in Nazareth, this hometown boy has come back, he's made quite a stir in the countryside, he's pretty popular. Um, what's he going to choose to read? Isaiah is a pretty big book. Um, he, he can choose anything. What will it be? The narrative slows down a, quite a bit as it focuses on Jesus. It says that he stands to read. He was handed the scroll with Isaiah. He unrolled the scroll, and then he rolled it back up, handed it back to the priest or temple synagogue authority person, and he sat down. In the middle of this verbal frame, he chooses what he's going to read. And if you remember, he read from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released and that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Important to note the time of the Lord's favor has come. Wow, what a statement, what a passage. The first three lines include the word me, if you'll note. The Spirit is upon me, he anointed me, and he has sent me. And then his mission is described, to proclaim that the captives would be free, um, that the recovery of sight would be for the blind, there was going to be release, set free, 
and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. These were the missions given to Jesus. Somewhere in that description, even I fit in. You fit in. And the recipients there of hearing that word realized that they would be part of that because the audience there is impressed. They're in awe. Everyone there was poor, captive, and oppressed. And the announcement is made that this good news is there. Time for a standing ovation. The eyes of everyone are on Jesus. And Jesus sits down. Now, in our society, we would probably think that was the end. However, usually rabbis, when they sat down, it was time to teach. So Jesus is nowhere near done here. This is not the end. Jesus is just beginning. It's time for the te teaching. What does he say? Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Extremely significant. I can hear them saying, what? Today? What are you talking about? Jesus, are you saying that you are the me referenced in this scripture? Are you fulfilling the hope that is described in this passage from Isaiah? What are you really saying here? Luke is using immediacy. With that one word, today, Jesus has inaugurated the age of salvation. Today, something really amazing is happening right here in Nazareth. Nazareth, excuse me. He's announcing that the deliverer is here. And everyone is speaking well of him. This is such great news. They were amazed at the gracious words from his lips. Yes, grace, amazing grace. And they're all speaking well of him. But somewhere in the back of their mind is the voice, and we hear them saying, how can this be? Is not this Joseph's son? As Jesus continues teaching, the whole thing kind of takes a turn for the worse. A pivotal piece of the puzzle is about to be revealed, and they go from praising this hometown boy to about ready to kill him. Crowds are so easily influenced. And we find Jesus responding in an unexpected manner. The audience seems to be responding with admiration, and they seem to be praising this hometown boy, and they're so excited about this grace-filled message. But it's not what's really going on. And you know what? Jesus' response is so that they know that he knows what's really going on in their heads. They may try to be trying to fool Jesus, but they can't. So we hear Jesus saying, you will undoubtedly quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. In other words, saying, do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum. Limited perception is the name of the game here. You see, they have no idea who Jesus really is. They believe he is the son of Joseph. He is so much more. 
He's the Son of God and has come for all, whether they liked it or not. He's greater, more loving, more compassionate than anyone or anything, and they can't even wrap their head around it. I know there are many times I can't wrap my head around this, and yet I'd much rather have a God that I can't fully comprehend and who is so awesome that I know I can trust. If I can understand him, can I really trust him? He is more awesome and more majestic than anything I can come up with, and I, I just love it that I can fully trust this God. I'm getting a little preachy. Let's get back to Nazareth. He continues with his teaching. He says, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Hmm. Okay. He doesn't stop, though. He goes on to remind them um, and use some biblical examples of people who had become agents of God's favor and of his desire to reach outsiders. The first example he uses is of Elijah. He says, certainly there were many needy widows in Israel in Isaiah, uh, Elijah's time when the heavens were opened or when the heavens were closed for three and a half years and a severe famine devastated the land. But Elijah was not sent to any of them. Instead, he was sent to a widow in Zarephath in Sidon. Oh dear, Jesus, do you know what you just said? Elijah's sent to a widow. What's a widow? She's a woman, God. Come on. They aren't supposed to be receiving this good news. Why are you sending good news to... And you know what? Even if you did want to send good news to a widow, why in the world would you send the good news to a widow in Zarephath? We got a ton of widows right here in Nazareth. The least you could do was give the good news to them. Do you not know that this widow from Zarephath is from the same town that that wicked Jezebel was from? No, 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 no. Not her, Jesus. She's one of those dreadful outsiders. She's not to be part of this, those allowed in salvation. You can't be saying that you're sending this good news to her. And yet, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. You see, God will reach anyone, anywhere, in the gutter where the drunk is lying in his own vomit, Jesus will reach out. On the street corner where the young girl is waiting for her next client, and even the darkest place of all on earth in cold-hearted churches where a lot of people think that they have no need of Savior but should be given a medal. Jesus reaches out for all of them. As if that wasn't enough, Jesus continues his teaching in verse 27. Okay, somehow I don't know what I'm doing here. There we go. Did you help me with that? Thank you. <laughs> and many in Israel had leprosy in the time of the prophet Elisha. But the only one healed was Naaman. Assyrian. Elisha healed a leper. This is another faux pas, Jesus. What are you doing? Lepers are cursed. Did you forget? There's a reason they're a leper. 
They have done unpardonable things. They're, there's no reason to be giving them salvation. If they, had, if they hadn't gotten leprosy, we wouldn't know that. But leprosy is the evidence that they are unreachable. What are you doing? But even if you do want to reach the lepers, we've got one just at the end of the street and the outside of town. Why are you not reaching him? Why, why, why go somewhere else? Don't you understand Naaman? Why, he's not even from here. And, and by the way, he's the enemy. He took our people captive. Jesus, he's a heathen. Why are you using this story? Why give him good news? How can good news for the poor embrace these wretched outsiders? Not them, Jesus, son of Joseph. Not them. Enough's enough. And even though these are good church-going people and are sitting in the chairs every Sabbath, there's a time when holy rage needs to take over. And we're told in the next few verses, when they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of a hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff, but he was a god too big for their small minds. And even though humans tried to delay or maybe even frustrate God's purpose, verse 30 tells us that he passed right through the crowd and went on his merry way. Jesus' ministry was marked with hostility right to the end when he paid the highest price imaginable because liberty, freedom, and release have a price. De Jesus declared that liberty would be for all. Now the thing I want, you to point out, want to point out to you that you may not have grasped from listening to this is um, liberty. I'm from Pennsylvania, so the Liberty Bell is kind of special in my heart. But one thing I didn't realize until just a little while ago was that the Liberty Bell has inscribed on it the verse from a Leviticus 25.10 where it says, Proclaim liberty throughout the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. Why is that significant? The verses that Jesus read from Isaiah 61 allude to the year of Jubilee. Now, in in case you don't really remember what the year of Jubilee was, it was also known as the favorable year of the Lord, which is what Jesus read in Isaiah 61. The favorable year of the Lord is fulfilled today in your hearing. This year of Jubilee was, if you remember um, scripture, God owned the land. He dispersed this land to his people gave them their inheritance. And every seven years, the land was supposed to lay in waste to rejuvenate itself. But every seven times seven years was that the next year was this special year of Jubilee, the 50th year. This was the year that all land returned to its original owner. All slaves were set free and 
given the chance of restoration and starting over. The, if, if you had to sell your property to pay some debts, you sold the use of that property from the time that you sold it until the next year of Jubilee. That was the price you would pay. Same thing went if you were a um, slave, if you had to sell yourself a slave. You got the price for yourself as of the day you sold it until the next year of Jubilee. Then everything was set free. If you were lucky enough to have a kinsman redeemer, or a goal, as they refer to it, um, this could happen any time during the time. But if you were not that lucky and did not have a kinsman redeemer, God stepped in as your kinsman redeemer and redeemed and restored your property to you. On that fateful day in Nazareth, Jesus announced that he had come to fulfill that role. He came to be the real Jubilee. He is your kinsman redeemer. The, he announced that this real year of Jubilee had started. Salvation was now theirs. When the United States was founded, it was established on a place to provide that kind of freedom and liberty for all. This freedom that Jesus announced started that day was no longer a prophecy, no longer a hope. It was real. It was a reality. It was liberty for all inhabitants. It was so in Leviticus, in Isaiah's time, when the Liberty Bell was established, and it was announced in Nazareth. It is true. It is a reality. It's not a prophecy. It's not a parable. It's real. There are no outsiders in the kingdom of God. I have been set free. You have been set free. And most amazing, they have been set free. Those lepers, those widows, those outsiders, all have been set free because Jesus is our jubilee. It's time to celebrate because it's true. You, me, we are all free because Jesus has stepped in as our jubilee. Father in heaven, I'm so grateful and I'm so humbled by the fact that you have done this for me. You're my kinsman redeemer, my jubilee, and have set me free from the sin that oppresses my heart is thrilled and goes out to you in gratitude and praise. I thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.